This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and director of the Burn Center there. The topic for this discussion is sepsis part two. Uh, several weeks ago, we uh, released a podcast on sepsis part one, where we went into some of the introduction of what are the definitions of sepsis, what's some of the biochemical uh, etiology of sepsis, and, and what are some of the statistics. We delved into some of the pathophysiology as well as some of the cellular mechanisms which actually make the septic patient sick. Today I'd like to actually kind of focus on what are some of the hemodynamic uh, resuscitation guidelines and, and how we go about resuscitating these patients and what are some of the medications that we use to try to normalize some of the uh, abnormal cardiovascular physiology. You know, somebody has sepsis from a pneumonia, we're not going to focus so much on the, the treatment of the pneumonia, but how do we go about treating the aberrant physiology? Now, you remember from the first talk, we said that... that Sepsis is, you know, it's it's kind of like jumping out of an airplane. It's not the fall that kills you, but the sudden stop. And a lot of times with sepsis, again, it's not the infection that is that is killing the patient, but it's the patient's physiological response to that infection. And then we talked about the the campfire in the forest and issues of source control. And that, you know, if you imagine that a peritonitis or pneumonia is the campfire and a hot ember gets out and sets the forest on fire, then that's the issue of sepsis. How do we control that inflammatory response? Now, it's important to keep in mind that shock is not defined by a particular blood pressure. Shock is defined by running oxygen debt. Now, having said that, you can have patients who have low blood pressures and have adequate oxygen delivery to the peripheral tissues, or you can have patients who have elevated blood pressures and have decreased or depressed oxygen delivery. When you have depressed oxygen delivery, cells don't function well, cells don't function well, tissues don't function well, tissues don't function well, organs don't function well, they fail, and that results in death. So what we're trying to do is establish an appropriate balance between oxygen consumption by the cells and oxygen delivery by the cardiovascular system. Everybody has what they believe to be their magic number of what an appropriate mean arterial blood pressure is, whether it's greater than 60 or 65, and it's those numbers somewhere between a mean pressure of greater than 60 or a mean pressure of 65, which we typically use uh, in the United States and, and in North America. In 1999, the task force of the American College of Critical Care and Medicine and their practice parameters for hemodynamic resuscitation and sepsis pointed out that maintaining a mean arterial blood pressure greater than 65 millimeters of mercury as uh, one of the most important positive outcome-related variables in treating the patient suffering from septic from sepsis. Keep in mind that as you're resuscitating this patient, as you're keeping their blood pressure up or giving them fluids, you're not treating the infection. All you're doing is supporting the physiology to allow the antibiotics to have their opportunity to work. Now, in addition to mean arterial blood pressure, there's a variety of other cardiovascular endpoints that people may use or may not use to judge the adequacy of one's resuscitation. And this will bring into the whole topic of pulmonary artery catheters. That's a topic we're going to save for another day because it's a hotly debated topic. Some of those doing the debating are predicating their arguments on science and others are predicating their arguments on religion. And I don't mean that in a literal sense, but some people have this, this devotion to the PA catheter. 
But it used to be that uh, people would use PA catheters and then um, basically resuscitate the patient to what we call supraphysiological endpoints of both oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. And this was uh, termed uh, goal-directed therapy. And there have been several trials, and, and these include an article by you uh, in Critical Care Medicine in 1993, Hayes and colleagues in Intensive Care Medicine in 1994, as well as Gatinani in uh, Intensive Care Medicine in 1995. And these investigations really failed to demonstrate any beneficial effect with supernormal uh, super oxygen delivery in patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. And subsequent to those three papers, a meta-analysis published in Critical Care Medicine back in 1996, uh, authored by Halen and colleagues, also confirmed, confirmed uh, the absence of any beneficial effect by uh, goal-directed resuscitation in patients with sepsis or septic shock. Now, as I said, there's another side of that argument, and uh, Rivers and colleague in Intensive Care Medicine published a paper in 2001 uh, titled Early Goal-Directed Therapy in Treatment of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock. Now, this was a trial of 263 patients with severe sepsis or septic shock, and they, um, their hypothesis was that early goal-directed resuscitation started in the first six hours improved survival. Now, I want you to think about your concept of what early goal-directed resuscitation is, getting a patient into the intensive care unit, getting them admitted, hooking up the monitors, doing the usual prenuptials that we may do when we enter anybody in the intensive care unit, and then eventually getting the PA catheter. What was unique about Rivers and colleagues' approach to this was they did this very quickly. They did this typically in the emergency department which is a paradigm that's not practiced uh, in uh, most uh, uh, large hospitals. And their study examined if goal-directed resuscitation was an effective approach when initiated early as opposed to the previous studies, which uh, targeted later ICU care, and frequently much later, uh, typically in, in uh, the course of uh, several hours or perhaps even after that six hours that Rivers and colleague were putting those PA lines in. What those authors felt that by waiting for patients to be admitted uh, to and resuscitated intense care unit, that too much time uh, was passed to allow reversal of the tissue injury from the occult ischemia, secondary to septic shock. The resuscitation endpoints that they chose were uh, the adequacy of oxygen delivery and normalization of those values for mixed venous oxygen saturation, blood lactate, base deficit, and pH. In their control group, patients received conventional monitoring with mostly backload resuscitation in the intensive care unit. And that was what we would really consider just a, a conventional admission to an intensive care unit and uh, resuscitation. In their group, in this study, uh, patients randomized to the early goal-directed therapy uh, approach with front-loaded uh, fluid and cardiovascular resuscitation while in the emergency department had significant decreases in morbidity and mortality. The mortality rate was 30.5% in the early goal-directed therapy group as compared to 45, excuse me, 46 6.5% in the control group. Now, that certainly should give one uh, pause, and the pause should be that, um, and there's been subsequent papers in the critical care literature about what is the effect of delayed admission to intensive care units. Many large hospital intensive care units are running at capacity with inherent delays in getting patients from the emergency department to the intensive care unit. Um, therefore, I think as reasonable providers, we need to facilitate those rapid transports to our intensive care units, getting patients where they need to. 
if there are inherent delays or there are delays due to uh, bed availability, we need to change our paradigm and perhaps initiate what would be considered traditional critical care measures in the emergency department. And this may include things such as PA monitoring uh, if that is what you feel is best practice. There are other large group of intensivists, and I think I probably fit in this latter group, that feel that uh, there are other ways to gauge adequacy of resuscitation um, aside from the use of a pulmonary artery catheter. At the beginning of this talk, we mentioned that keeping one's mean arterial pressure greater than or equal to 60 or 65 was a significant variable in the improvement of outcomes of patients uh, experiencing or suffering sepsis or septic shock. How can we achieve that? And, and often fluids are what we typically respond to, but also the use of vasopressors. And when somebody's blood pressure drops below that magical threshold of, say, 60 or 65, what vasopressors, what vasopressors uh, should we initiate and which ones might be more beneficial for your patients? The first thing to be mindful in the treatment of hypotension related to sepsis or septic shock is that your first treatment is, is fluid resuscitation, making sure that patient has adequate preload. The definition of adequate fluid resuscitation is something that is, again, subject to great debates and uh, within the era of abdominal compartment syndrome and open abdomens, I would say that that is on the uh, extreme end of a fluid resuscitation. But we don't want to be giving patients vasopressors or inotropes if they're hypovolemic. Once we've uh, initiated or established adequate fluid resuscitation, we ne then then need to think about what is our next line in the use of uh, vasopressor agents. The reason why patients are typically hypotensive following adequate, adequate fluid resuscitation is due to a combination of vasodilation and decreased contractility. Let me say that again. Vasodilation and decreased contractility. And this is outlined nicely by Dellinger in Cardiovascular Management of Septic Shock, published in Critical Care Medicine in 2003. Therefore, when you go to choose your drug, you need to be thinking of both providing an agent that causes vasoconstriction as well as an agent that will serve as an inotrope. Now, this may on the surface seem inherently not to make sense because you know if you do use a PA catheter, you see these large numbers of a patient who is hyperdynamic, who may have a cardiac uh, index of, say, 6 or 7. And again, I'm telling you the patient has decreased contractility. How is that possible? Well, because somebody has a high cardiac output doesn't necessarily mean that they have an adequate myocardium. Uh, the example that I'll often make is that the, uh, having a 1972 Vega drive down the interstate at 80 miles an hour on three cylinders, it doesn't necessarily mean that that car or that engine is functioning adequately just because it's, it's going fast. Norepinephrine and dopamine um, are typically used as first-line drugs. My personal preference is norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is a potent agent, and it's usually not associated with the delay in restoration of mean arterial pressure. It's able to get the blood pressure up reasonably quickly. Sometimes you can see a delay and increase in the blood pressure if you're using dopamine or phenylephrine uh, as um, those drugs, dopamine and uh, phenylephrine, have less vasoconstrictive strength. Norepinephrine, also known as levofed, appears to improve the cardiac index while increasing the blood pressure. And contrary to what was perhaps previously believed, there is good evidence now that suggests that splanchnic perfusion is perfused in patients when you're using levofed, particularly if you're using it in combination with dobutamine. And the sources for that are Levy and Collings in Critical Care Medicine, excuse me, Levy and Collings in Intensive Care Medicine, 1997. Meyer Hellman and colleagues in uh, intensive care medicine, 19, 
1996, and Martin and colleagues in Chess in 1993. So again, we're not talking about new science here. Studies suggesting that uh, norepinephrine is superior to dopamine are a little bit less, or, excuse me, are less definitive. And the idea that dopamine is uh, causing uh, um, renal range dopamine is something that's been reasonably debunked uh, quite some time after uh, decades of people searching for that holy grail of dopamine preserving renal function. It's not the dopaminergic receptors that we were taught in medical school. Dopamine has some naturetic effects and just perhaps that you're increasing the cardiac output and mean arterial pressure as we're increasing uh, the uh, renal perfusion. As I've said, the pressure effects of dopamine are weaker than those of norepinephrine, and the inotropic effects, effects of dopamine are substantially indirect through stimulation and release of uh, myocardial catecholamines. Tachycardia is more common to dopamine than the norepinephrine, and dopamine uh, does result in suppression of prolactin production from the hypothalamus, and this does have significant immunosuppressive effects. And uh, this was uh, detailed by uh, Devins and colleagues in critical care medicine back in 1992. Martin and colleagues in critical care medicine 2000 did a uh, prospective comparative trial of vasopressors in 97 patients. And this was done over in Europe. And these patients had septic shock. What they demonstrated that norepinephrine was associated with significantly improved survival. It is important to note that this was a non-randomized trial though. Another vasopressor that's pretty commonly uh, used or discussed is the use of phenylephrine, also known as neosinephrine. Uh, phenylephrine is a pure alpha agent, and it really has minimal or no inotropic effects. As a result, it can actually result in a reflex of bradycardia. For that reason, it's, it's uh, something to consider for use in patients who are tachycardic or having uh, tachyarrhythmias. Epinephrine, we all know, is a very powerful beta agonist, uh, vasoconstrictor, but the problem with use of epinephrine is it results in disproportionately decreased splanchnic blood flow. Um, it also causes uh, um, a decrease in gastric mucosal pH and uh, decrease in splanchnic oxygen consumption and increased lactate in septic patients, and therefore epinephrine is not a wildly popular choice in the hypotensive uh, septic patient. Another more common uh, drug being used, uh, perhaps because of uh, designer purposes or just getting more popular, is the use of vasopressin. Uh, vasopressin acts on the vascular smooth muscle independent of adrenergic receptors by binding the V1 receptors. So this is kind of an, a nice uh, uh, method. If you're using a beta um, uh, adrenergic agent or for use of vasoconstriction, say an alpha adrenergic agent, if you're using norepinephrine and you're using phenylephrine, uh, stimulating the same receptor is not likely to result in a different result. It's like using two beta-lactam antibiotics to treat pneumonia. We would use antibiotics with different classes. One of the advantages of vasopressin is that it's not a alpha adrenergic agent and in and such it's acting through the V1 receptor. This is pretty attractive in the use of septic shock because septic shock is pretty much typified by down regulation of adrenergic responsiveness. The other concept that uh, supports the use of vasopressin is this idea of what people call physiological vasopressin replacement. And what people are talking about there is that uh, the posterior pituitary gland where vasopressin is uh, released becomes rapidly depleted of native vasopressin in patients who are in prolonged shock. And this basically leads to a hormonal, a hormonal deficiency. And the administration of vasopressin in that clinical situation would essentially act as replacement therapy. 
Vasopressin is especially effective when given to patients who are already on high-dose adrenergic vasopressors. Uh, vasopressin at doses, say, greater than 0.04 units per minute is associated with both myocardial splanchnic as well as digital ischemia, and the, the doses higher than that should be avoided in patients who are septic, in septic shock. Patel and colleagues in anesthesiology in 2002 uh, did a comparison between uh, uh, norepinephrine alone uh, with a combination of norepinephrine and the low-dose vasopressin at a dose of 0.04 units per minute. And this was done in a small group of patients who were in septic shock. Those patients who received the vasopressin required significantly less norepinephrine and had improved renal function um, um, as well as improved urine output suggesting that vasopressin exerted perhaps some renal sparing effect. There is uh, some uh, data coming out soon in the VASST trial that uh, may show that the two regimens of uh, vasopressin plus norepinephrine compared to the norepinephrine alone are equivalent. We're going to change gears a little bit now and talk about corticosteroids. Seems like everybody loves corticosteroids for one reason or another. I'm not exactly sure why that is. I remember as a resident learning that uh, people would say that no one should die without a blast of steroids, and I'm not sure that I was ever given an explanation as to why that is, and uh, to this data I have yet to see an explanation that supports that. There have been some intriguing trials, particularly looking in the cases of ARDS. Schumer and colleagues... Uh, a published paper in uh, Animals of Surgery in 1976 uh, titled Steroids and Treatment of Clinical Septic Shock. And then Dr. Bone uh, uh, published an article in Chess in 1987 looking at patients, the use of uh, methylprednisolone treatment of septic shocks as well, shock of, as well as ARDS. Based on these two papers, the uh, high-dose use of corticosteroids and septic shock really became uh, widespread and in some places actually very commonplace. But subsequently, uh, prospective randomized trial, uh, trials uh, using uh, uh, methylprednisolone at doses of, say, 30 megs per kilogram really demonstrated no benefit uh, of the use of corticosteroids in patients with septic shock. What's becoming rather popular now is the association of sepsis and adrenal insufficiency um, in a uh, significant subset of patients. Uh, the papers that have really popularized that are Anon in uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2000, and it's volume 283, 1038-1045, as well as a paper by Cooper and colleagues in intensive care medicine 2003. If you've ever seen a patient who has adrenal insufficiency, they look just like a patient who has septic shock, and they're very refractory to resuscitation, uh, and therefore that's what's led people to think, well, perhaps these people have adrenal insufficiency. Don't get me wrong, there are clearly patients out there who have adrenal insufficiency and benefit by steroid replacement. However, what has uh, um, come to fruition is that everybody in the intensive care unit now seems to be getting cortisone stimulation tests being put on replacement dose steroids even in the absence of any symptoms to suggest the patient is having um, adrenal insufficiency. There have been several studies that have demonstrated that the administration of stress dose of steroids, which is really about 150 to 300 milligrams of hydrocortisone daily to patients with septic shock, can decrease pressure requirements and suppress the inflammatory mediators that we talked about in the first podcast. And the references this include Anon in the uh, British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology in 1998, Bullard in Critical Care Medicine 1998, 
and Kay and colleagues in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in 2003. If we talk about the Anon study a little bit, they performed a short uh, corticotropin or ACTH stimulation test, and what they discovered is that 54% of their 189 patients in septic shock were uh, corticotropin non-responders, and, and that is to say that they had adrenal insufficiency. Based on that evidence, that the severely septic host could be adrenal insufficient, it was hypothesized that corticosteroids might be instrumental in reversing circulatory shock. Let's replay that from that initial study. Okay, We're talking about the Anon study in Journal of the American Medical Association. They had septic patients. They weren't talking about patients who were hypovolemic shock from hemorrhage. They weren't talking about non-resuscitating uh, burn patients. They weren't talking about the post-operative patient having acute myocardial ischemia or pulmonary embolism. They were talking about septic patients who were refractory shock, who had ACTH uh, stimulation tests, 54% of them failed the test. And since they had the data that said 54% of them failed, the next logical conclusion was, let's take this leap of faith. Well, steroids might help these patients, and it might actually reverse the shock. But, that's not, but they didn't show that giving the steroids helped the patient or reverse the shock. They just showed that 54% of the patients were non-responders. Now, Bragel in Critical Care Medicine, 1999, and Cronin in uh, Critical Care Medicine 1995. These are two small single institutional studies and they randomized patients with septic shock to receive either 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone IV three times a day or a placebo. The investigators demonstrated faster reversal of shock in the subjects who received hydrocortisone and a trend, a trend towards improved survival. And that's with those two small studies. Now we're going to jump ahead to 2002 in the Journal of the American Association. We're back to a paper by Anon and colleagues. Now this was a prospective randomized multi-trial center of 299 French men and women in septic shock. Patients underwent a uh, corticotropin stimulation test and then received uh, hydrocortisone at a dose of 50 milligrams IV bolus four times a day. And... Uh, uh, Florinef, 50 units orally once a day for seven days. Now, what's pretty surprising is that 70% of the patients in this study were found to be adrenal insufficient, which is up from 54% in their first study. So now 70% of the patients have adrenal insufficiency. And corticosteroid uh, uh, therapy decreased the 28 mortality by 10% in the ACTH non-responders. Now, what is defined as an ACTH non-responder? This was described as a failure to raise the cortisol by 7? No. By 9? No. But by 10 or greater at 30 or 60 minutes. And I can't tell you how many times I see patients, and they say, the patient's a non-responder. You say, how do you define that? And they say, well, they're, they're, uh, they had a low uh, basal cortisol, random cortisol. That's not how uh, that study was done. Uh, well, they had a failure of a delta of 7. They're, they only went up by by um, 7 or 9. The way they said is that you had a failure if you couldn't raise it by 10 after your ACTH uh, stimulation test. And in this group of patients, there was no benefit for corticosteroid replacement in those patients who successfully responded to the ACTH challenge. And that's a little bit more interesting. Now let's look at the corticus trial. And the cortical, corticus trial is a trial of stress dose steroids versus placebo in, in septic shock. 
It appears from Corticus that septic shock patients enrolled in this trial did not benefit from stress steroids at a dose of 200 milligrams per day IV. Furthermore, there was no difference in response to steroids between non-responders and responders to the ACTH stimulation test. Now, granted that those patients um, who were considered uh, responders had actually a, a more rapid reversal of their shock than the, the group that were the non-responders. Much to no one's surprise that the number of uh, super infections in the steroid-treated group was also increased. So what does that mean? These two trials uh, are showing different results. Well, they were done differently, and, and that's why perhaps the results are different. When you look at the trials of the Anon studies, patients were included in their study if they had persistent hypotension despite fluid resuscitation and vasopressors. Let's say that again. If you're, the Anon study was patients who were hypotensive despite fluid resuscitation and vasopressors. Now, the corticus trial was perhaps the more common type of population that we see in, in sepsis, septic shock, and that is patients who had a vasopressor requirement following fluid resuscitation, but most of the patient's blood pressure responded after the initiation of vasopressors. So if you actually combined the findings of, of both the Anon trials and, and the corticus trial, it would pretty much say that if you're considering steroids in a patient in septic shock, it would typically perhaps benefit those patients who fail their stimulation test and a patient who is unresponsive to vasopressors. The last topic uh, on this uh, sepsis part 2 that I'd like to talk about is the, uh, the use of recombinant uh, protein C, or the drug Zygris, and being the trade name. The prowess study demonstrated a, a decrease of about 6.1% absolute decrease in mortality with the use of recombinant factor C in patients with septic shock, and it had a p-value of uh, 0 0.05. Due to the findings of the study, the uh, FDA in the United States approved the use of this drug for patients with sepsis-induced organ dysfunction uh, with a high risk of death, such as an Apache score of greater than or equal to 25. In Europe, the drug has been uh, approved uh, for uh, septic patients with multiple organ failure. The Society for Critical Care Guidelines for the Management of the Severe uh, Sepsis and Septic Shock recommend the use of uh, recombinant uh, um, uh, protein C in patients with a high risk of death due to sepsis-induced organ dysfunction. This started to ask the, really the question as to if we use this drug sooner and perhaps a patient population who isn't as critical with failing organs and everything else, could we perhaps uh, prevent the uh, onset of organ failure and improve outcomes of these patients and, and decrease mortality? And this was the idea behind the ADDRESS trial. It was designed for the purpose of prospectively studying the effect of uh, 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 recombinant protein C in patients with severe sepsis at low risk of death um, but it really failed to show any benefit of patients who were at low risk of death, uh, and therefore, at least in the United States, stick to the uh, initial labeling that recombinant protein C should be used in patients who are at a high risk of death from sex, uh, sepsis. The final topic is going to be the intensive use of uh, uh, euglycemia in the uh, septic patient within the intensive care unit. We previously have done a podcast on this, and um, we're going to focus just on uh, the patient with sepsis in this, this limited discussion. This discussion really got rolling um, 
by a series of articles published by Vandenberg starting around the year 2000. And Vandenberg uh, and colleagues demonstrated that the use of intensive insulin regimens by maintaining euglycemia pretty tightly between 80 and 110 could uh, uh, result in astounding benefit uh, in outcomes of patients who are critically ill. And they compared the group of 80 to 110 to uh, patients whose blood sugar was between 80 and 200. And they looked at it roughly over 1,500 critically ill surgical patients. In the patients they looked at, 62% of them uh, underwent cardiac surgery. Those patients that were in the experimental group received a continuous insulin infusion uh, titrated uh, according to frequent blood sugar uh, testing, and the mean daily insulin dose was uh, more than double that given to control patients. In the experimental group, the tight glycemic control, the average blood sugar was 103 milligrams per deciliter compared to the control group where the mean blood sugar was 153 milligrams per deciliter. Those patients who were randomized to the intensive insulin uh, group experienced a mortality reduction of 50% with fewer septic episodes. Patients also had less bacteremia, less multiple organ failure, less critical illness polyneuropathy, less time on uh, ventilator support, hemodialysis, as well as fewer transfusions. Vandenberg then did another study looking at medical ICU patients, again using similar criteria with blood glucose targets between 80 to 110 in the intensive insulin regimen. In this particular uh, study, they really failed to show any benefit, but it did show a trend in survival uh, with other clinical outcome variables, such as decreased infection and decreased ICU stay. Subsequent to this, in a paper uh, published in Critical Care Medicine in 2003, they did a post hoc analysis uh, looking at the mid-range of blood glucose levels. Now, this was a uh, logistical regression and a post hoc analysis, uh, and in that um, in that analysis, they showed that the mid-range blood glucose levels, looking at between uh, a blood sugar between 100 to 150, did experience a worse outcome. They also reported hypoglycemia in 5.2% of the intensive insulin group compared to 0.8% in the control group. However, uh, two recent trials in Europe, and this was uh, uh, talked at uh, pretty significantly about at the last critical care uh, Congress meeting, um, uh, that um, uh, two recent trials in Europe, one targeting septic patients, were stopped uh, due to a high incidence of clinically significant hypoglycemia with no difference in outcomes. What remains to be answered is whether tight control of blood glucose, namely in that range to 110 to 150, would offer similar protective benefits with less risk of hypoglycemia in a broader group of patients. The Society for Critical Care Medicine interesting recommendations um, um, recommend an upper threshold of 150 milligrams per deciliter instead of the 110 recommended by Vandenberg and colleagues because of these concerns over hypoglycemia. What's interesting from these studies is that when I was a resident, we didn't even think about treating blood sugars until the blood sugar got above 250. And when you look at paper after paper after paper, and we've detailed this in the other podcast, you see almost exponential rise in complications, be they morbidity and mortality, once you start to break at that level about 150. And what needs to be answered in the Vandenberg study that post post-hoc logistical regression really wasn't, didn't answer it, was that do we have a perceived measurable benefit in the patients by managing them between 80 and 110 versus managing them, say, between 100 and 150. But what is clear is gone are the days where we basically ignore the blood glucose and allow patients' blood sugars who are critically ill to rise to 200 and 210 routinely without managing it down uh, intensively with uh, insulin drips. 
it is my opinion, and my opinion only, that we will see considerable discussion of this over the next couple of years, and I believe that the truth will lie somewhere in the middle, that uh, the 18110 looks good now, but as we get out, uh, we may learn that the risks of hypoglycemia are actually real. Uh, when we start marrying this with other topics in critical illness, particularly about what we use about cardioprotective uh, measures in the intensive care unit, with the use of beta blockers, if you have a patient on a beta block, and you look at the label that comes with it, one of the things you're going to see are things about hypoglycemic unawareness. Uh, and uh, hypoglycemia may not be symptomatic in the critically ill patient. Large numbers of our patients are reasonably sedated. And we can again talk about, well, how, what's the appropriate level of sedation in a patient in the intensive care unit? And we should use RAS scores and everything else to try to keep our patients as wake and interactive as possible. But some patients, particularly the patients I take care of in burn units, uh, are deeply sedated and for long periods of time. And they are on beta blockers for cardiac protection. And in burn patients, we even use beta blockers for metabolic control. And in those situations, the patient may have a hypoglycemic unawareness that can have profound effects. The other interesting thing that I've learned by taking care of burn patients is that my patients, after they've been sick and in the intensive care unit for weeks and weeks, which could be a several-month intensive care study, um, their auto-regulatory mechanisms uh, to respond to hypoglycemia are severely blunted to compared to other patients I've cared for either in trauma or surgical intensive care units or the burn patient who's been recently hospitalized. And those are other concerns that we have, uh, particularly in regards to hypoglycemia. Uh, it will be interesting to see how this discussion plays out both in the meetings and the literature. That concludes this topic on sepsis 2. Um, my name is Jeff Guy. Um, the the uh, website is um, uh, the website that my residents use is uh, www.burndoc.com. Uh, the uh, home website for the podcast is www.icurounds.com. I do appreciate the feedback and the email that you folks are sending. It gives me great ideas for future content and uh, certainly something to think about. And it's nice to know uh, that um, all of you are sending the kind notes. I appreciate the, the podcast. Have a good day.